I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Welcome! You've got digital folklore. April 24th, 2023. I'm beginning to get a little worried. Hello, this is Perry Carpenter. Hi, this is Stephen from Houston. I just straight to on cleanup services. Um, yes? This is just a customer satisfaction follow-up call. How many bodies? Oh, just the one. One body. Great, yeah. Man. Thank you. Uh, cause of death? Um... I guess officially death by van crushing. Um, twice, if that matters. I went forward. There was uh, screaming, uh, still a little bit of movement, so I backed over him again. Okay, and was the van repaired to your satisfaction? Yeah, um, all the cracked glass, the dents, the roof, uh, all, all of that was fixed up great. You would never suspect a thing, and I've, I've not heard anything from anybody. They seem great. They showed up fast. They kept the onlookers busy. And I haven't seen any mention of it in the newspapers. So I'll definitely be using your services again. Thank you, thank you. Glad to hear that. Have a nice day. And thank you for choosing Oops and Ice at Oops and Nice.com. Yep. Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay. 8 April 24th, 2023. 
I, I'm beginning to get a little worried. Things seem to be getting progressively, I don't even know how to explain it. Um, the only word I can think of is weirder. Ever since we started this podcast and started digging into all these concepts around folklore and especially analyzing these creepypastas, these really strange occurrences have been picking up. And I don't know if something followed us out of the woods all the way back in episode one. We still haven't figured out that missing time thing with Todd this hook-handed man on the roof of the Volkswagen. And now Mason called me and said that the TV we bought from Todd started spewing black flames and it wrecked the tape for this week's episode. So I'm, I'm going to keep this audio journal just in case something happens to me. I'm still at the Airbnb right now and uh, things, for the most part, outside of all this madness, uh, things have been pretty calm on my end. Oh, except the owners barging in unexpectedly every now and then because they keep forgetting things that they left here. And it is disturbing when some weird people you haven't met show up at 3 a.m. in their bathrobes in the middle of the night. But, I mean, all that is manageable in comparison, and maybe it's normal for Airbnbs. But anyway, between all this strange phenomena and the fact that the listeners in our Discord keep telling us that there's somehow messages hidden inside the podcast. I'm starting to suspect something may be stalking me and Mason. I, I, I know it sounds, God, it sounds stupid to me, and I don't even want to bring it up to Mason yet, but my gut tells me that something weird is going on here. Something's just for lack of a better word, wrong. So I'm going to go out on my own for a minute and call up someone who I know understands exorcism and talismans and religious rituals and demons and history and all that stuff. I want to talk to him just in case he might have some kind of knowledge that could come in handy. I'm going to pause this recording real quick and call him up. And then once he's on the line, I'll roll tape again. All right. And we are recording. Can you give me your name and a little bit of background on who you are? I'm Dr. Francis Young. I work on the history of religion and belief and also on folklore. I'm interested in a whole variety of subjects in that area, including the history of magic. I'm interested in the origins and meaning of fairy belief, exorcism mostly across the United Kingdom and Ireland, and also in the, in the Baltic region. So those are the areas that I work on. So how does one get into that academically? Like, what is the path of saying, this is what I'm going to focus my life on? And what is the academic carve-out for studying that, publishing it, finding a community of other people who talk about the same thing, all of the stuff that comes with that? What does that look like? Well, I started out as a, a more conventional historian. I was interested particularly in the history of Catholicism in England. But the thing about Catholicism in England is that it was always a rather fringe survival. England obviously undergoes the Reformation in the 16th century, and there's an attempt to kind of stamp out Catholics and their beliefs. And Catholics were often vilified as superstitious for their superstitious beliefs. And so I became fascinated by this concept 
of marginalized religious beliefs or indeed non-religious beliefs, beliefs in you know, things that might be vilified by people as superstitious, dismissed as silly. And yet all these beliefs, they have a history. And that's really what, I, what I'm into. I'm into the, the history of these strange beliefs that are a, a little bit marginalized and off-center. And yeah, I have found a community of people who are interested in that. I mean, via social media, it's great. You can walk into social media and talk about absolutely anything you want to, and you can find a group of willing people who are willing to discuss it with you and usually not make fun of you. And it's the dream for pe people who are interested in strange things. There's an academic community out there as well, but I'm passionate about sharing this and increasing knowledge of strange beliefs and the history of strange beliefs with the public at large. So I'm interested in flashing back to specifically the Catholic piece of this and thinking about cathedrals and some of the more grotesque and demonic figures that you may see embedded in that type of architecture. What is the significance of that and how does that gel with the faith of the people that are going into that church? Because it seems like from an Americanized point of view, that those things would be separate in some way, and you'd want to keep them separate. And if you had a poster of that in your child's room, you might worry about them a little bit. So, so how does that come to be? I think the answer to that is popular Christianity. And this to me is a key concept when it comes to studying any period of any religion, but particularly when it comes to the Middle Ages, particularly when it comes to Christianity. There is a, an official version of the faith, which is usually enforced, in this case, the, the Pope, the bishops, the hierarchy of the Catholic Church. And there's a, a, a grassroots version of that religion. And I think there was an older view, which has now largely been discarded among scholars, who would say that Christianity in medieval Europe never quite replaced and stamped out paganism. And when we find these grotesque images, they're a resurgent or surviving paganism that's under the surface. And in the vast majority of cases, that's probably not true. What we're actually looking at is a popular religion that deals with evil, that deals with protection from evil in, a, in ways that are not officially sanctioned by the church. They're still grounded, broadly speaking, in a Christian worldview, but it's not necessarily one that the authorities would approve of. So, for example, when it comes to grotesque images in churches, they are yeah, most scholars would now say they have an apotropaic function. In other words, they are these deliberately ugly images that are there in order to protect against evil. And it's something that we find cross cultures. I mean, it's very prominent in the Far East, for example, of the portrayal of these kind of hideous masks. But they're actually a positive thing because they, they are there in order to scare away, if you like, the real demons, the real spirits. So it's a kind of sympathetic magic, a kind of a way of supplying a deterrent to these demonic forces. So yeah, I would say it arises from popular religion. Hey listeners, if you're like me and enjoy escaping to a real movie theater, then Regal Unlimited just makes sense. It's the all-you-can-watch movie subscription pass that pays for itself in just two visits. You can see any standard 2D movie anytime with no blackout dates or restrictions. And your membership lets you get into premium format shows like IMAX and 4DX at a reduced cost. Plus, you'll save 10% on all non-alcoholic concessions. Regal Unlimited. 
It's the all-you-can-watch movie subscription pass that pays for itself in just two visits. So, if you're planning on seeing a couple movies this month, join Regal Unlimited. Now is the best time as summer's coming up. Sign up now in the Regal app or on the website at regmovies.com unlimited. And be sure to use the code FOLKLORE24 to get 10% off a three-month subscription. You can shop from anywhere doing pretty much anything. You might shop while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast. And however you shop, we all know and love the thrill of the hunt. But do you also know how to get the thrill of the best deals? Because Rakuten shoppers do. With Rakuten, they get the deals they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Sephora, Nike, and even Expedia if you're looking to get some travel in. And getting cash back doesn't mean you have to miss out on sales because those can just be stacked right on top. It's easy to use and based on a simple idea. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers, and Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back through PayPal or check. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. I know that there's so many branches we could take here. I want to jump into some digital branches in just a minute. But I know that some of the things that you focused on with this religion hat on are things that are considered darker, more esoteric, things like exorcism. So tell us a little bit about your study of that. And I don't want to front load any expectations about what you may have there, but what got you into the study of that and what have been some of your most uh, interesting findings when you think about exorcism? Well, exorcism is directly there on that frontier between religion and magic and is a particularly contested subject in the sense that the form that exorcism often takes, considered from an anthropological point of view, is clearly within the realm of magic. And in particular, kind of magic of protection or or magic that's directed in order to relieve people of of evil, which is something we find across cultures all over the world. And yet, exorcism is jealously claimed by many religious organizations as being something that is most definitely on the religion side of the line. And so it's something which is not magic from the point of view of those who are performing it, usually. They would not imagine it in those terms at all. So when you look at exorcism, you find these tensions between religion and magic. They are there at their most intense. And one form that that takes is the tension between charismatic exorcism and a kind of rules-based exorcism. I've looked in particular at exorcism within the Roman Catholic Church and also within the Church of England. And what you find in both of those contexts is that there's a strong tradition that exorcism is something which you kind of make up as you go along. Uh, So it's a skill that's acquired by long experience by priests who claim to be spiritually gifted or psychically gifted that you know, they have the, this particular skill set which makes them the only people who can really do this effectively. And there's also a tradition that you can't just get anybody to do an exorcism by saying the right words. In fact, you, know, you need somebody who is a person of upstanding life and deep spirituality and mysticism 
who will actually perform the exorcism most effectively. And you, you see this kind of thing in, in the film The Exorcist. You know, you've got to get the big guns in. You've got to get the guy in who has a reputation for being really good at exorcism. And that's the charismatic tradition of exorcism. But the church, of course, doesn't see it like that at all. The church sees this as something which needs to be regulated. Because if you allow people to run around and make a name for themselves performing exorcisms, then they're kind of free from any kind of authority because they've, they're able to do something that no one else is able to do, and that shouldn't be the case. The power needs to be concentrated in the right place, and the right place is up high in the hierarchy. And so as far as the bishops are concerned, exorcism is all about following the rules, making sure that you follow the prescribed liturgy, that you do it in the correct way, uh, that you always seek permission to do what you're doing, that you have the correct permissions and licenses and so forth. And so you've got this, these tensions in the history of exorcism of the church itself constantly intervening to stop exorcisms from happening or to restrict exorcisms, but at the same time wanting them to happen because exorcisms are a way of proclaiming the church's power, for example, a way that one denomination can show that it's more powerful than another, a way that Christianity can show that it's more powerful than other competing religions in a missionary context and so forth. So it's a very, very complex and very kind of paradoxical uh, phenomenon, exorcism. That's fascinating. I, and I want to get perspective on one thing. I mean, you mentioned within the more liturgical church, like the Catholic church, that there are even systems that would require somebody to have a certain license for exorcism. I don't, is that the case? Do you have like an exorcist license or a little badge that you can, and I, I don't mean to trivialize it. Is there like specific paperwork that somebody gets or training that they have as part of that? Oh, sure. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, the way that the contemporary church works this is that in order to be an exorcist, you need to be specifically trained. There's something called the International Association of Exorcists, which provides training in Rome and around the world. And you need to be appointed by your bishop as a diocesan exorcist. And in the case of something big, so a major exorcism, that is to say, you believe that someone is actually possessed by an evil spirit, not just things that go bump in the night, full-on bodily possession. In that case, in many dioceses, you do need to seek the bishop's permission specifically for that to take place. And yes, a lot of paperwork is involved. And there have been a couple of cases that have ended up in court. And as a result of ending up in court because somebody's been injured or died as a result of the exorcism, all of that paperwork has actually been made publicly available, whereas mostly it's secret. It's something which is not accessible. But we do know from those few cases how that works. So one other question kind of on that line, then when you get to things like exorcism and the demonic, what differences do you see in the legitimacy of certain types of phenomena? And by that, I mean, what is the source of certain things like a demon that might need to be exorcised? Or you mentioned things that go bump in the night. You know, there are certain branches of Christianity that would say ghosts are not real. Everything is demonic if that's happening. Would other branches say that there could be some kind of entity that's not necessarily evil in nature, but might be more benign? Yes, absolutely. There's huge debate and disagreement about that between individual exorcists within one denomination, let alone between different denominations. I think it's something which isn't openly discussed in the way that other doctrinal issues are, because I think it's considered a bit embarrassing. It's considered a bit of a fringe subject. Within the Roman Catholic Church, there's a huge amount of variation in, in approaches. I mean, I wrote a book uh, last year, actually came out, that was about the Catholic Church's approach to witchcraft today. 
particularly the approach that exorcists take to witchcraft in different countries, and whether they think that it's real, or whether they think that it's really a danger, or whether they think that it, it should be dealt with by exorcism and so forth. And there's no agreement. And I think it's because it's a fringe subject, it doesn't have a definitive answer. And I think, yeah, when it comes to exorcism, yeah, absolutely, there are some Christians who they would say that exorcism actually is not required, or they would say that the only way in which exorcism can be performed is through prayer and fasting. That's one tradition. However, I think the influence of global Pentecostalism has really led to a resurgence of the idea of deliverance ministry, as it's sometimes called, within a lot of churches, even within mainstream Protestant churches that a hundred years ago wouldn't have dreamt of engaging in something like exorcism. It's become something more acceptable, more mainstream. A hundred years ago, 200 years ago, exorcism was almost dead in all of the mainstream Christian churches. It was a dying phenomenon. It was something that was being rejected. And yet, from the 1970s onwards, in some cases a little bit earlier, exorcism has come back big style. It's huge now, not just in the Pentecostal churches, but also in the Roman Catholic Church, even in the Church of England. You don't necessarily associate the Church of England as being the most wild of Christian denominations. And yeah, exorcism is actually quite a big thing. So yeah, it's, it, it, I think attitudes have changed. I think the influence of global Pentecostalism and the charismatic movement have been really significant, even on the most staid of mainstream denominations. So within that same context, then, what is the place of, and I know it's broader than just that time period, but what is the place of ritual? in any type of religious context. Yeah, ritual is a fascinating thing because it exists both as something religious and as something non-religious or para-religious, perhaps we could say, existing kind of in parallel to religious practice. And there's certainly a great debate among anthropologists of religion about the extent to which religion gives rise to ritual, or is it the other way around that ritual gives rise to religion, that, that, that ritual is something more fundamental to human behavior than religion itself. And I think there's a great deal in that, in the sense that ritual is not an intellectual activity. It's not something which is based on a specific consciously realized belief. Take superstitions, for example. Whatever you want to pick, you know, not walking under a ladder, throwing salt over your shoulder, avoiding black cats, whatever you want to talk about in the way of superstition. People do these things without thinking about them. Sometimes they're not even aware that they're doing them because they've kind of become ingrained behaviors. And therefore, ritual is something which seems prior to religion. If we are to understand religion as this kind of more complex collection of belief systems and practices and behaviors and rules for life and moralities, and all these kind of things that we find within religion. When it comes to ritual and religion, we don't know which came first. I think that a lot of anthropologists and archaeologists would say that it is ritual which gives rise to religion, in the sense that ritual is something that we see in both religion and magic. Magic, you know, sometimes it's imagined as the dark twin of religion, in the sense that it shares many of the characteristics outwardly of religious behavior, and yet inwardly, the intent and motivation of magic is very alien to the kind of intents and motivations that we're supposed to see within religion. And yeah, that's one view. But another view would be to say, well, religion doesn't have to be ritualistic, and therefore, why would you say that religion must arise from 
ritual. But I think that's rooted in a particular view of religion that emerges from the Reformation as something which is kind of free from ritual or pretends to be free from ritual. And I think that's really quite a recent development in the history of humanity. Certainly, it's hard to imagine people being particularly interested in that before the advent of printing, before the advent of mass literacy. The idea that religion is a matter of the heart, the idea that religion is a matter of sincere belief in a holy scripture and so forth. It's not something which could really exist in a kind of pre-printing and pre-literate world. So ritual is absolutely central to community identity. It's central to not just religious or magical acts, but also things like the agricultural year in pre-industrial societies. So it's got a very important function in the preservation of a kind of an arc of memory, an oral tradition. And therefore, it's kind of in the realm of folklore, as well as, you know, merely the realm of religion and the realm of magic. This may be a weird question, but maybe a little bit of a tangent real quick. In your opinion, where do things like fandoms come in? Do you think that they get close enough to the line to be considered some kind of religion in some way? Yeah, I mean, there, there was a big debate last year, I think it was, and, and maybe going back a bit further, about fandoms. Are fandoms religions? Do they have the characteristics of religion? I mean, I think part of the problem is that religion is, is just one of those conceptual terms that we use all the time, but nobody can give a convincing definition of what it is. And so that allows it to be kind of applied to other things. And so I, I think there's a sense in which it's a little bit too easy to say fandoms are religions or online trends like manifesting our religions. Because yeah, you can call anything a religion. And there's a sense in which you're bound to be right because religion doesn't have any agreed definition. I think it's more profitable and more fruitful to actually look for the more specific characteristics that we see in things that are manifesting on online and what they might represent within a particular religious practice. And I think that certainly when you look at something like manifesting, for example, it does share certain characteristics with magical traditions. And I think also certain things that people do within fandoms, yeah, they do share commonalities with religious traditions. You know, the whole problem of people getting het up about debates about the canon. I mean, that very word, canon, which you get a lot in forums discussing cult movies, cult books, TV series, and so forth, uh, is, of course, a religious word. You know, it comes from the concept of the canon of scripture. There's this kind of debate about what is authentic, what is the authentic scripture. And yeah, it does have this quasi-religious feel to it. Now, whether that means that the fandom itself is a religion, I would say not really, because overall it does not have the structure of religion. But I'd say that there are individual things within it that have this very kind of religious resonance often. Shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples. Hey ya, Mason here. And I don't think I've mentioned it on the show before, but I have two cats, two big old boys named Chester and Cinders, and I love them both very much. But I didn't grow up with cats, and I've never suffered from general allergies like pollen, so it took me an embarrassingly long time to realize that I was allergic to them. No joke, when I started working from home, I would say things like, wow, I feel like I'm losing my voice every day, or isn't it weird, I can't breathe through my nose for some reason. Ultimately, it was my partner who said, that really sounds like allergies. 
allergies, and long story short, now I take a Claritin every day. Luckily for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin clear with Claritin D. Designed for serious allergy sufferers, Claritin D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so you can breathe better. Ready to live life as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When we think about the digital world, what interesting things do you think that this unlocks for us and what potential threats do you think that you see as, a, as somebody who studies the wide range of things that you focus on? I think one immediate impact that we see from the digital world and the discussion of belief and magic and folklore in, in, in that kind of digital realm is an internationalization. It's something which perhaps makes it harder to hold on to specifically local traditions. If you're interested, as I am, in historical folklore studies, so looking at what people believed in the, the 19th century and earlier, is the highly localized nature of this, which is, you know, both a gift and a problem. It's a gift because it allows you to find these highly distinctive ways of understanding the world that seem to be specific to ordinary people in one part of Britain or one part of Ireland or wherever. But the trouble is you then have this question, how does this relate to what people believed in other areas, what are the common threads here? You know, are these beings of folklore the same as these beings of folklore that share a slightly similar but also slightly different name and all this kind of stuff? Whereas I think when you look at online folklore, it is heavily internationalized. You've got figures like Slenderman or Mothman and you know, particularly creatures from Japanese folklore that have become widely spread in, in kind of international understanding of creepy beings. It does have this kind of internationalized and undifferentiated character to it. Now, that I think is fine because that is what happens when you create an online community. That online community is not going to be bounded by any geographical restrictions whatsoever. But it's interesting to look at how humans then behave when they are within this kind of virtual realm where they're not bounded by the physical or by landscape. Because folklore, certainly when you look at it historically in Britain, for example, is deeply rooted in place. And online is somewhere where you don't have place. So how does folklore work when it's kind of released from place, when it's released from landscape? And I don't have an answer for it. I think it's too early to say. It's only really since the 1990s, isn't it, that the internet, the World Wide Web has existed in any meaningful sense for ordinary people. And therefore, you know, 30 years, it's just not long enough to really be able to, to say. I think at the same time, though, we do see interesting differences in permutation of different things that we might call lore within different silos of the internet. The things that I am exposed to, if I were to go on 4chan, are different than the things that I might get exposed to on TikTok. 
the things that I'm exposed to even on 4chan are different than the things that people are exposed to if they go on 8kun, where all of a sudden the purity of different pieces of folklore or the disturbing nature of different pieces of folklore bring themselves to bear differently within the folk groups that tend to cluster in those different avenues. Do you think that's similar to the localization issue? I I think in a way it must be because you're talking about different populations and and presumably there is some overlap of populations of people who are using different platforms. But on the other hand, people do tend to be quite loyal to one particular thing. You know, I, I am very loyal to Twitter. And so, yeah, it's, it's kind of, in that sense, it is because you've got a law that has developed within a population. And in the same way that, you know, in the physical world, you'll get population exchange between countries and therefore there will be a shared folklore crossing boundaries and stories being shared. But I, it would be fascinating, for example, to have a look at online folklore, digital folklore, and to examine it in terms of tail types. You know, the Arna Thompson Index, famous approach that was adopted by traditional folklorists, where you essentially classify stories according to their basic plot characteristics. For example, Rumpelstiltskin, a classic story of lazy girl marries the king. She has to undergo this test of spinning wool in an impossible amount of time and receives assistance from this goblin-like creature who refuses to give her his name. If she knows his name, then she can liberate herself from the sort of the curse that he's going to place her under. And you find this story, you know, where the goblin has different names. So this is, you know, tale 500, tale type 500 in the Arnold Thompson Index. And it would be fascinating if you were to apply that to to digital folklore, to stuff like creepypasta, because there's no reason why it couldn't be analysed in exactly the same way that traditional folklorists were analysing stuff collected by the Brothers Grimm. And yet, of course, it might fit into as yet uncatalogued and unnumbered tale types. So that is, a, you know, I don't know whether anybody's done that, there might well be somebody doing it right as we speak, but it's that kind of structural analysis of stories, which can be a fruitful approach in folklore studies. I know that you see a lot of potential when it comes to categorization, archival, the ability to blend both digital and physical to do even better, more quality, faster research than has ever been done before. What are your thoughts there as somebody who really sees opportunity here? Yeah, I mean, the digital revolution has been a game changer, really, for traditional folklore studies, particularly historical folklore studies. Certainly when you look at the UK and Ireland, it's increasingly rare to find old-style folklorists who will go out with a a recording device and go down to the pub or go to the village and try and record stories in versions that haven't previously been heard before. Because there isn't much of that stuff out there anymore. The sad fact of a heavily industrialized society that, you know, such things since the Second World War in particular have fallen into abeyance. And so most folklorists are working with earlier records of what people were saying to older folklorists. But the trouble is that a lot of this stuff was recorded in local newspapers. From the mid-19th century onwards, folklore is an obsession of editors of local newspapers. Now, until digitization, it was essentially impossible for any human being to really go through all of these Victorian local and national newspapers and find all the folklore and pull it out. 
because it would have been, you know, the work of, of seven lifetimes, the way that these things were preserved was not very user-friendly at all. Digitization, so things like the British Newspaper Archive, they completely change that. So they make it possible for you to do a keyword search and to find everything that there is about folkloric belief in one particular region or one particular kind of folkloric belief. For example, Simon Young, who works particularly on fairy belief, but also boggarts in the north of England, he is a real pioneer of this, shown the potential of what this can do. In the US, Chris Woodyard, you know, has similarly worked in this way. And it's an absolute goldmine. There's vast quantities of information found in these digitized newspapers. But there are also folklore collections, which previously had been languishing completely unpublished in manuscript, huge folklore surveys, and they now can be made accessible through digitization, whereas publishing them would be unfeasible. You know, you've got to get somebody to transcribe them. Whereas, of course, if you're taking photographic images, then it's a bit more straightforward. A good example of that would be the scores collection. So University College Dublin has this extraordinary collection of material that was collected in the 1930s by a national campaign of the Irish government to essentially collect all of the Irish folklore that could be found, mainly from children. And that's why it's called the schools collection, because children in school were asked, find your parents, find your grandparents, find your great grandparents, ask them the stories that they know. And then the children would come into school, they would write it down. So they're effectively using the children as the transcribers of all this folklore. And then this stuff just goes into a massive archive in Dublin. And really, unless you were really determined as a researcher, you wouldn't find this stuff. But now anybody can look for it. Anybody can search through digital search terms. So it's really opened up the folklore of, of Ireland. And another example that I really love is obscure local magazines published in the 1970s. The, you know, things that were kind of home-printed magazines of local lore and weird stuff like UFO lore and things like that. And it belongs to this kind of lost culture of shared pre-digital analog culture of kind of shared interests among small groups of enthusiasts. And some of that stuff's been digitized as well. And I particularly love that. So it, it really has opened up the frontier of what can be digitized. I think that's super, super cool. Uh, the thing that I'm wondering in all of that is as we get away from the original source material and we go to the digitized preserved versions of that, if there have been found any errors or maybe even intentional misrepresentations, has anybody tried to change the record to make themselves look better or make somebody else look worse in the middle of all that? Perhaps not change the record, but I think that something like this, curation is crucial. And as with any kind of archive or museum curation, who looks after it, what their priority is, what their agenda is, is going to affect the nature of the collection. What is considered worthy of digitizing? What should be digitized first? The trouble with digitization projects, they're usually absolutely massive and take years. And therefore, decisions about priorities have to be made. And those decisions affect what we consider to be significant. One that I would like to highlight is the Folklore Library and Archives. And this is a, a UK-based initiative. It has a physical headquarters, which is at Credit and Public Library in Dorset. But it's also got an online presence. And it's a kind of mixed hybrid economy where you've got a collection of physical books and pamphlets and things like that. 
but you've also got things that are being uploaded online. And one of the interesting things about the Folklore Library and Archive, they they focus or particularly on things like ephemera and things like privately printed, locally printed, things that are smaller than a book and aren't an official journal article and things like that. The sort of stuff that in digitization projects, it can get overlooked because it doesn't have that official status. It doesn't have that formal status. Some of the most interesting folklore stuff is that, like people who write books about their local ghosts, that's probably not going to be published by a mainstream publisher. It's probably not going to be a journal article in a reputable journal. And yet it's going to be hugely important to the folklorist. And I think that this is the thing about folklore. It's a very, very diverse source base, much more so than a traditional history. In a traditional history, if you're doing medieval history, you've got a fixed kind of manuscript source base. You kind of know where these things are. They're in the well-known archives. Or you've got archaeology. When it comes to folklore, well, the original sources are people. They're living people, most of whom are now dead. And the only thing that we've got is the record that was made of their words, which of course could be in uh, the form of audio recordings. So, you know, you've also got plans to digitize audio recordings, huge amounts of audio recording, or indeed something like the East Anglian Film Archive, which has digitized a lot of film of the East of England, particularly things like traditional crafts traditional dances. It, there's not really much point describing a traditional dance in words because you, you won't be able to convey you know, what it really was. So it's, you need film in order to record that. And some of this stuff dates back to the 1930s, the 1920s. And so it's very valuable records of lost societies. All right. Um, that felt like it went well overall. Dr. Francis Young really knows this stuff and I also don't think that he caught on to the real reason that I was calling. So that's good. Here's to hoping that this information helps, or maybe even more, that it doesn't have to help. Oh, God. I I really wish I hadn't booked such a big Airbnb just for myself. This place is starting to creep me out a bit. Anyway... I'm going to go try to relax. I'm halfway through rewatching Good Omens, and I just need to chill out and turn my brain off for a while. So um, hopefully I'll be back soon to make another entry. Until then, signing off. You've reached the voicemail box of Mason Amadeus. Leave me a message, and I'll ignore it for six months and then text you and apologize for doing that. Worth a shot, though. Here's a beep. Hey Mason, it's Perry. Um, I know it's super late, so you're probably gonna get this in the morning maybe, but uh, I, I just had an interesting interview with a guy named Francis Young and I'm gonna need you to cut some end credits for me. So something you know normal, but thanks for listening to Digital Folklore. Uh, special thanks to our guest on this episode, uh, Francis Young. Francis had a whole bunch of insight and expertise that he shared with us, so be sure to highlight that and make it sound really special. Um, so that we'll, we'll pull some together some links uh, about his work and all that. We'll throw it in the show notes. Oh, don't forget to tell people about our Discord, you know, all the fun that people are having there, blah, blah, blah. Um, all that in the show notes as well. Of, of course, if people like what we're doing, Patreon, give us cash, all, all that kind of stuff. 
Um, and then depending on where the music is, if you want to say Digital Folklore is a production of 8th Layer Media distributed by Realm. All, all the normal stuff. You'll, you'll figure it out, I'm sure. All right, later. Activity detected. Subject group 35423. Group audio recording. Transcription in progress. Keyword found. Francis flagged for containment. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk turned traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world that ours is not a loving God. And we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available.